Hello everyone and welcome to the March 14th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB split panel decision ruled that Labor Code Section 5814 penalties do not apply to a delay in a sheriff's disability retirement advances. Here's what happened in the case of Gage versus the County of Sacramento. In 2011, Rebecca Gage injured her lumbar spine while employed by the County of Sacramento as a deputy sheriff. The case was resolved in 2014 by a stipulated award. Then, on March 6, 2015, Gage applied to the Sacramento County Employees Retirement System for a service-connected disability retirement and the application was acknowledged on June 3rd, 2015. Almost a month later, on July 2nd, 2015, the county initiated payment of disability retirement advances. Gage then claimed that the county's delay in initiating disability retirement advances entitles her to recover a Labor Code Section 5814 penalty. And the work comp judge agreed and found that disability retirement advances pursuant to Section 4850.4 of the Labor Code are compensation under the Labor Code and an unreasonable delay in making advances is therefore subject to a penalty. But the WCAB reversed in the split panel decision. The Labor Code provides for the advance payment of disability retirement benefits to certain public safety employees. The provision of that special benefit for those public safety employees is similar to the special payments provided for public safety employees under Section 4850. Earlier panels of the Appeals Board found that delayed payment of the special benefits under Section 4850 is not subject to a 5814 penalty. Moreover, the majority ruled that the payment of disability retirement advances is not the payment of workers' compensation benefits and thus not subject to a penalty. Commissioner Marguerite Sweeney wrote a dissenting opinion and would have sustained the penalty. She said Labor Code Section 3207 plainly defines compensation as including every benefit or payment conferred upon an injured employee. Thus, the WCAB has jurisdiction to award a penalty. Kim Kardashian is now the target of a workers' compensation subrogation lawsuit. She was sued this month by the workers' compensation carrier for a company that employed a man who says he was injured in 2014 Beverly Hills collision with her. Applied Risk Services filed the lawsuit in Los Angeles Superior Court seeking unspecified damages. Applied Risk is the TPA for California Insurance Company, the workers' compensation carrier for John Paul Company of Van Nuys, which employed Rafael Antonio Linares of Moreno Valley at the time of the collision. Lenari sued Kardashian in a separate complaint which says the crash occurred on Sunset Boulevard near Benedict Canyon Drive. Kardashian reportedly collided with Lenari's silver sedan while turning left in her black Mercedes G-Wagon. Lenari's and Kardashian were both able to drive their vehicles to the nearby <clears throat> Beverly Hills Hotel where they exchanged information and according to some reports even hugged each other before they left. 
There were no tickets issued at the time of the incident. A photo of the damage to Kim's G-Wagon after the incident shows only a small paint scuff on the bumper of her SUV. And now our crime report. A paraplegic correctional officer has been sent to jail for his fraudulent claim of industrial injury. John Smiley and his wife Cynthia Biasi Smiley were sentenced to 240 days in county jail, five years formal probation, and ordered to pay more than $38,000 in restitution to the state compensation insurance fund. Back in 2008, the Smileys both went to a swingers club in San Francisco. But after an argument ensued with a fellow patron, the Smileys left the club. As they walked to their car, John was shot in the back by the same male who had threatened him after he had had relations with his wife inside the club. John Smiley was rendered a paraplegic as a result of the shooting. The Smileys told the police that they did not recognize or know the male or female and had never seen either of them prior to that night. Approximately 11 months later, the story changed. John filed a claim for workers' compensation benefits and Cynthia filed a lien for workers' compensation benefits based on her care of her husband and John also filed for an industrial disability retirement with CalPERS. The Smileys testified under oath at a deposition that they could not remember the swingers club they were leaving when the shooting occurred and could think of no reason why the man would have wanted to kill John. They testified that neither of them ever touched, spoke to, bumped into, or danced with either the unknown female or unknown male. John even testified he never looked at the female, even though he told the police after the accident that he had had sexual intercourse with her. In an effort to make the injury work-related, John claimed he recognized the shooter as a parolee he had once transported. However, when questioned by the San Francisco Police Department immediately after the shooting, John indicated the shooting had nothing to do with his work as a correctional officer and that neither of the Smileys recognized or knew the shooter or his wife. John's initial demand to the state fund to settle the case was $4 million, and his wife Cynthia demanded $271,000 for her services as her husband's caregiver during the previous two years and indicated this amount was growing every day. And yet another contractor has been sentenced for premium fraud. 47-year-old William Allen Huffman pled guilty to felony insurance fraud and tax evasion charges arising from his ownership of Capital City Construction Company. Huffman falsely reported to his workers' compensation insurance carriers that he had either no employees or very few of them, when in fact he often had several employees. He also paid his employees in cash and failed to collect and turn over the required unemployment insurance deductions to the California EDD. Huffman underreported his payroll by more than a million dollars, defrauding his insurance companies, Zurich and Wesco Insurance. Under the terms of the plea agreement, Huffman will be ordered to serve one year in county jail, be on formal probation for five years, and pay over $300,000 in restitution. 
After three years of planning, an immigrant rights group is set to start a smartphone app for day laborers, a new digital tool to fight fraudulent employers, among other uses. Workers will be able to rate employers, log their hours and wages, take pictures of job sites, and help identify, down to the color and make of a car, the employers with a history of withholding wages. They will also be able to send instant alerts to other workers. The advocacy group will safeguard the information and work with lawyers to negotiate payment. Not mentioned by the app developers is the opportunity for workers' comp carriers to recover lost premium. The app had its soft launch with beta testing to be held later this month at the Jackson Heights section of New York City day labor stop that stretches for a mile along 69th Street. Day labor centers in Brooklyn and on Staten Island will also be testing the product, which is available in Spanish and English. The plan is for the app to spread to all 70 of the city's day laborer stops and then to workers in all kinds of jobs across the country. The app began as a project of new immigrant community empowerment known as NICE in Jackson Heights and then expand in scope when the group's parent organizations, the National Day Laborer Organizing Network, based in Los Angeles, secures more funding. The project has been a collaboration of workers, artists, organizers, lawyers, unions, and academics. The Worker Institute, a program within the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University, ran forums for workers across New York City to see what they most needed in an app. A San Francisco group, Rebel Idealist took over the design at the beginning of this year after the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades pledged $25,000 to support the app. The group also received $15,000 from the Ford Foundation. The app has workers record their hours and wages, which are then saved in a profile. If a worker reports not being paid or being underpaid, NICE will contact the employer. If necessary, lawyers from the Urban Justice Center who conduct monthly clinics at NICE will help recover lost wages. It is not hard to imagine how the app can help workers' compensation carriers recover lost premium and for authorities to discover and prosecute employers who commit workers' compensation premium fraud. And in regulatory news, the DWC has posted the 2015 Ethics Advisory Committee's annual report on its website. The Ethics Advisory Committee is independent from the DWC and is charged with reviewing and monitoring complaints of misconduct filed against workers' compensation administrative law judges. The EAC is composed of nine members, each appointed for a term of four years and the composition reflects the constituencies within the California workers' compensation community. The EAC meets four times a year at the DWC headquarters. Anyone may file a complaint with the EAC and it may be submitted anonymously, but all complaints must be in writing. The committee is required to make a public report each year summarizing activities in the previous calendar year. In the 2015 report, the EAC considered a total of 38 of the 44 new complaints it received in 2015, in addition to six pending complaints left over from 2014. 
the complainants set forth a wide variety of grievances. A large proportion of the complaints alleged legal error not involving judicial misconduct or expressed dissatisfaction with the judge's decision. The majority of complaints were filed by unrepresented employees. The EAC recommended that further action be taken in three lien cases. All three complained about a lack of courtesy, dignity, and rudeness on the part of the work comp judge and threatening and intimidating behavior. One case reported by two different people said that the work comp judge called a doctor's office and ordered that the doctor appear at a hearing that day. The doctor responded that he was observing a three-day religious holiday and could not appear before that was over. The work comp judge allegedly responded that he did not believe the doctor. The complainant alleged that the judge appeared smug, negative, and downright abusive to all the parties. In both cases, the committee recommended that the chief judge further action be taken and recommended that this matter be referred to personnel. In another complaint, a lien claimant said that the judge displayed rude, abusive, undignified, ill-mannered, intemperate, disrespectful, and discourteous conduct by yelling at the complainant and imposing sanctions for not producing the lien claimant representative at the hearing even though no subpoena had been served. The complainant filed a petition for reconsideration in that case, which was granted for further review. The complainant also attached three other panel decisions in different cases that found that the same judge engaged in the abuse of discretion. Following its review of the investigation, the committee recommended further action and referred this matter also to personnel. A report from the Workers' Compensation Research Institute at its 2016 annual Issues and Research Conference in Boston claims that higher workers' compensation fee schedules result in cases being shifted from group health coverage to workers' compensation. Depending on the injury, decisions about whether an injury is related to work may rely heavily on treating physicians' assessments. With fractures, contusions, and lacerations, it is usually clear whether an injury occurred on the job, but causation is less obvious for soft tissue injuries such as knee and shoulder strains, and doctors have more discretion in forming an opinion on causation. But the presenters cautioned that this is not about fraud. It's about uncertainty and financial incentives could influence that decision. The study claims that increasing workers' comp reimbursement rates by 20% for physician services associated with office visits increases the odds that a soft tissue injury will be considered work-related by 6%. And this 6% increase in comp-related soft tissue injuries leads to a 1.5% increase in overall workers' comp costs. There was no evidence of case shifting for patients with fractures, lacerations, contusions, or traumatic injuries by trauma in all 50 states that were studied. Patient incentives also can come into play since there are no copays for deductibles in work comp. Everything else equal, the patient would be happy if a particular case was called work-related. And in medical news, according to a new study, 
Government letters informing doctors that they are prescribing vastly more addictive drugs than their peers fall on deaf ears. The doctors in the study were all writing far more prescriptions for opioid painkillers than doctors in similar specialties practicing nearby, but the letters did not lead to changes in their prescribing habits. The use and abuse of opioid pain relievers like Vicodin and Oxycontin have risen dramatically since the late 1990s, with overdose death rates quadrupling between 1999 and 2014. And seniors are often prescribed benzodiazepines, or benzos, like Xanax and Valium, for long periods of time. But these drugs can increase their risk for falls and are also addictive. The researchers used data from Medicare to identify about 1,500 outlier healthcare providers prescribing Schedule II controlled substances at much higher rates than their peers. An average outlier provider was responsible for 406% more prescription drug fills than comparable peers who were matched by state and specialty. These outliers were randomly assigned to two groups. Providers in one group received letters from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services informing them of how much more they were prescribing addicting drugs in relation to their peers across the state and nation. And did these letters make any difference? Well, after 90 days, there was no significant differences in prescribing patterns between the group that received the letter and the group that did not. The CWCI reports that the number of inpatient hospitalizations in California workers' compensation fell 22.8% between 2008 and 2014, exceeding the declines noted for California hospital stays paid under Medicare and private insurance coverage. This is in sharp contrast to the growth in Medi-Cal inpatient hospitalizations that followed the introduction of the Affordable Care Act and Medi-Cal's absorption of the Healthy Families Program. The number of hospital stays by discharge year for workers' comp cases steadily declined from a high of over 24,000 in 2008 to less than 19,000 in 2014. This was an overall change of minus 22.8%. By comparison, this outpaced the steady decline under private coverage of minus 17.8% and Medicare of minus 1.8%, and the steady increase in Medi-Cal hospitalizations. The study also identifies the 10 most common inpatient diagnoses-related group codes in workers' comp for 2013 and 2014. That analysis found a 21% reduction in the number of California workers' compensation implant-eligible spinal surgeries. This coincided with the phase-out and ultimate repeal of duplicate pass-through payments for hardware used in workers' comp spinal surgeries. And in other news, for years, Andrew F. Puzder, the CEO of CKE Restaurants, which is the parent company of the Carl's Jr. and Hardy fast food chains, has been complaining about how the federal government makes life needlessly miserable for businesses and that California is exponentially worse. 
This week, the company announced that it is moving its headquarters from Carpinteria, California to Nashville, Tennessee. In 2013, the CEO told the Wall Street Journal that his chain would not expand in California because the state, he says, is not interested in having businesses grow, noting among many other things that it takes 285 days to get a building permit after signing a lease. This means the chain has to pay rent for over nine months plus the time needed to build while not earning any revenues. The company appears to have planned to move its headquarters to Nashville for years. Why did management clearly choose to go elsewhere? Well, among other things, the CEO told the Journal in 2013 that the Golden State's labor laws are intolerable. And Carl's Jr. joins a long list of California companies with an exit strategy. Some of them are big employers, such as Toyota, that announced plans in 2014 to move most of its 5,000 managers and employees from Toyota's Torrance, California headquarters to Plano, Texas. Toyota has enjoyed a deep relationship with Texas through its $2.2 billion truck assembly complex near San Antonio. And remember many decades ago when General Motors had an assembly plant in Van Nuys. Southern California's long history as an auto manufacturing center ended in 1992 when a flame-red Chevrolet Camaro rolled off the assembly line, the last of 6.3 million vehicles built in Van Nuys over 45 years. The Van Nuys factory, which also made Pontiac Firebirds, was the last auto plant in Southern California. Its demise follows the closure in the early 1980s of a Ford Motor Company plant in Pico Rivera and a GM plant in Southgate and the 1971 shutdown of a Chrysler Corporation plant in the City of Commerce. A recent published study of California divestment events, which are business decisions to shun the state, paint a grim picture. These come in three ways. Companies that left the state entirely, companies that expanded in other states rather than in California, and a few companies that had planned to grow in the Golden State but changed their minds. The study found records over, of over 1,500 divestment events occurring in California between 2008 and 2014, but that number is an incomplete accounting of the situation. Experts in site selection generally agree that at least five events fail to become public knowledge for every one that does, giving rise to the conclusion that the real total is probably more than 9,000 divestment events for this period. So we can say goodbye to the number 9001, the Carl's Jr. headquarters. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.